Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, are Timothy Muirhead and Dustin Camilleri. Hey, guys. Hi. Hey. Uh, no guests today, so you can find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado. Tim is at Azimuth Audio, and Dustin is at Pulse Train. Let's do some comments. Okay, great. Our first comment is from Brendan JTR. He says, hi, guys. Great podcast. Really enjoy listening to it. We'd be asking too much for you guys to write down the time codes of each topic in the podcast notes, or even add podcast chapters for each topic to make it easier to go back to an old episode to find a specific discussion. I just thought of it as I was searching through episode four for information on naming files. Thanks for all the hard work. And uh, Brendan, I think the answer to that is yes, it would be too much to ask. (laughs) This podcast is a lot of work for us right now, and uh, I don't know if we have the uh, time to do that. But we appreciate you going through the old episodes. Yeah, we try to stay pretty diligent with the show notes as we're editing just to give you links as to go out to the things that we're talking about. But yeah, it's a lot of effort just to kind of get it up and get it out. And this is stuff that we're doing in our downtime and our side time. So, Yes. However, if you'd like to donate a lot of money, then we'll start doing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, the next question is from Stefan Kovachev. He says, hey, guys, I really love the show. I recently attended a lecture presented by location sound recordist Greg Smith of the American University on his work with Ben Burt capturing the sounds of Lincoln's day. The amount of research involved in capturing those authentic sounds was pretty amazing. As a sound guy, it's encouraging to see that kind of attention and detail and importance given to the SFX track. Anyways, I'm really enjoying the format of the show and getting a lot of good information. I look forward to listening to all your future shows. I think he's referencing the uh, interview we did with Dustin Kaywood about the sounds of Lincoln. The next comment is from Steven Saldahanna, who uh, left this message on her Facebook page. And according to Facebook, it's his birthday today. Nice. So happy birthday, Steven, the day we're recording this. Uh, He says, hey, guys, I was listening to your stuff till 3 a.m. last night and woke up today and continued to listen more. Thanks for putting your time and effort to provide us with great information to learn. If you're wondering why I'm staying up until 3 a.m., it's because I'm fresh out of film school and looking for work currently. And the podcast is certainly helping me. But anyway, I have an idea of what would be curious to hear on the show. After reading Renee's review of Skyfall on his blog, I'd like to know how you guys learn from listening to the work by some of the best in the business. You know, with me personally, when I'm listening to things, I'm I'm asking myself if I know how to do that, if I know how to do what I'm hearing. And if the answer is no, then that's something for me to go down the rabbit hole and go chase and find. If it's something interesting and something that I like. For the longest time, it was weapons. You know, there was the guns that were in Inception and the guns that were in Heat. You break those things down and you go, "How how do you exactly do that? And it's about developing your critical listening skills on one specific thing in a lot of cases, for me anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. If I hear something, then I try to figure out, can I replicate that? And if I can't, then I'll spend some time trying to do so. The other thing is that I look for techniques maybe that I haven't tried. So if there's this particular scene and they approached it in a way that I never would have, then you know I'll file that away in my, in my locker, so to speak, and maybe call on that in the future. Yeah, I think that's a big deal, too. Being able to see other people make decisions, creative decisions that are fundamentally different from what you would have done and evaluating whether or not that's also a good decision. Sometimes you'll see certain visual elements and you'll be like, wow, I would have never approached it that way sonically. That's pretty cool. I think being able to diversify your influences and and diversify your approaches to certain visual things is always good, especially, you know, when you when you come across somebody that's doing something very creative. I think an example of that for me would be the alien voices in District 9. Given what those aliens looked like, I would have never come up with what they did for the alien vocals in District 9, and I love what they did. That was highly influential on me. Something that I like to do is uh, try and cross genre. So I mostly work in animation. So I like to look at what's happening in non-animated projects to try and see how I can use that in animation, like try and use uh, cross-pollinate the ideas of different genres. Okay, the next comment is uh, from uh, who is quickly becoming a regular uh, commenter, Andreas Ubenes. 
Uh, he says, what an inspiring new Tonebenders podcast, referring to episode five. Didn't know about the SCC club, which is the Sound Collectors Club, and will definitely contribute. Can't wait to listen to all the sounds there. And uh, he's followed through on that, hasn't he? Yeah, you know, I'm a member, and I guess you are too, right, Tim? Yep. And so, yeah, we've seen the deluge come from Andreas, so mm-hmm. it's been awesome. I'm still pulling that into my library as we speak today. And that's the comments for this week. If you want to leave a comment for future episodes, feel free to go to tonebenders.net, click on an episode, and uh, leave comments. Thanks a lot. So the first segment we're going to do today is about analog synthesis. You know, a lot of people sit inside of the software world, and it's really good to break out and get into the hardware world if you can. You don't need the biggest, baddest, most intense, expensive thing to make really cool analog sounds. So here's a segment that Tim put together. Huge sound effects libraries and field recording rigs are the main tools of today's sound designers and editors. But sometimes projects require sounds that have to be synthesized from scratch. Everyone has their own go-to software for these situations. The specialists turn to Kima. Reactor is very popular too if you want to dig deep down. There's always Metasynth, Omnisphere, and Absynth as well. These are all fantastic tools to create sci-fi textures that help immerse the audience in new, unimaginable surroundings. Or to bring in sounds to make the viewers uncomfortable leading to a major plot point in a thriller. The possibilities of these soft synths and processors are essentially limitless. And one can spend hours digging deep down the rabbit hole looking for the perfect sounds for a specific project. I find that sometimes I like some limits, though. These are the times that I turn to analog synths and electronic instruments. They do not offer the endless options, but they do offer a large amount of unpredictability. It is that very element of the unknown that makes these synths so exciting. I'm not referring to virtual instruments modeled on old analog synths. I mean actual analog synths. Original hardware versions made of metal and wood. Yes, synths that are made of wood. Pre-MIDI, some are even pre-polyphonic. These old instruments are as unpredictable as they come. You can have all the switches and gliders and knobs set exactly the same as they were two days ago. And yet when you turn it on, the sound is completely different. You will never find those sounds exactly the same again. My collection of analog synths started to build along with my love of sound. I had taken to collecting older analog synths that I would find at used musical instrument shops, thrift stores, or even yard sales. Since I was a student, I could not afford the cool digital synths that were newly on the market in the early 90s, so I made do with my low-rent finds. At that time, MIDI was all-important, and any synth that was built before MIDI was kind of considered old news. I was lucky enough to become interested in these synths in this strange pocket of time when the analog sound was thought of as dated. It was not long before everyone realized that the sounds these original synths made were actually warmer, smoother, and generally just way better than what MIDI was able to offer at the time. The most obvious use for these types of instruments is in kitschy, throwback sci-fi sound effects. I worked on an animated series that called for lots of 50s-style space sound effects, and turning to my collection of analog instruments gave me a lot of material to edit in the program. These analog synths have not seen the end of their use in terms of modern sound design. They make great starting points to twist and manipulate sounds from, including telemetry, Alarms. User interface sounds. Building force fields. Weapons. Power-ups and downs. Drones. Radio wave weirdness. And they can make a pretty good attempt at iconic robot voices.
All the sounds you just heard were made with a Moog Concertmate MG1. This is an interesting little synth. It was made by Moog, but it was sold at Radio Shacks as part of their own realistic line of products. The Concertmate was basically a stripped-down version of other Moog synths that they were selling in high-end instrument shops for thousands of dollars. I was lucky enough to see it in a pawn shop one day. I noticed that the noise glider and the little mixer built into the synth was up full and all the other gliders were all the way down. I hit a couple keys and all that came out was filtered white noise. The owner of the shop saw what I was looking at and told me it was busted. I of course knew it was fine, and if I pushed up the switches for the other tones, it would start sounding like a synth again. I asked how much he wanted for it and pounced all over his $30 asking price. I bet I could have talked him down if I'd felt like it. That was 20 years ago, and although it is showing signs of deterioration, it's still going strong. Especially considering it was built in 1981 and sold as the consumer version of a Moog, and might not be as sturdy as the other synths made from the day. After the Moog, I was hooked. Over the years, I've acquired lots of analog synths, including three synths from Roland, the Jupiter 8, the JX3P, and the Juno 60. From Korg, I have the Poly 61 and a few others. But the ones I have found that I seem to love the most are the lesser-known synths. My favorite is most likely the Cruise from an Italian company named Seal, spelt S-I-E-L. This keyboard is great because it looks and sounds really cool. Visually, it has tons of switches and gliders and a bunch of flashing LEDs, as well as an interesting red and green on dark brown color scheme. When I'm giving a studio tour, it always seems to get everyone's attention and a few questions about its origins. Sequential Circuits actually offered a rebranded version of this synth in North America called the Fugue, but that version is much less visually interesting. As much as it looks cool, it also sounds great. And I've used it as a starting point to twist and manipulate sounds like sirens and alarms. For cartoony blings and boings. As sound design elements and machine malfunctions. I've even used it to create a dial tone that I needed to distort and mutate as a character was feeling the effects of becoming drugged. I find myself going to these great old pieces of gear less frequently, as soft synths get better and better, but I always find a great sense of satisfaction when I do lean on analog gear for results. Using these sounds as bass elements along with modern plugins and sound design techniques, you can really give something an organic feel. There is something so fulfilling about the physical presence of sliders and switches that makes you feel more a part of the process. I hope that as long as these synths are still working, I can continue to keep coming up with great sounds from them. So Tim, how many synths do you have? Five right now. At one point I had a bunch more though. But as you grow up and space becomes more of an issue when you share it with others, one must downsize, unfortunately. Nice. How old were you when you started collecting? Uh, I would have been about 18, I guess. Was that before your love of sound design, or uh, well, did that kind of coincide? It coincided. At the time, I was just finishing high school, I guess, and applying to go to film school and uh, playing around with a lot of sound. And then when I got in film school and kind of learned of all the great sound stuff that can happen in that world, that's when I the two worlds kind of met and collided. Uh, I wanted to ask Dustin a question. Uh-oh. We'll just fill it in with, like, the Mac robot voice uh, well let's do this Dustin, the question because uh as we learned in episode one dustin is a kima user but dustin you also have been uh, tweeting recently about how you've gotten into modular synthesis i was wondering if you wanted to talk about how you decide which direction to go for things yeah so i recently made the jump into a modular unit i built myself a 12u euro rack based system and it was really just wanting to get out of the box. And a few years ago, I became really into the idea of control. And, you know, I've been a software user for so long and a mouse and keyboard guy for so long that I wanted to get some musicianship back into the things that I was doing. And so I looked into you know, alternative forms of control, such as 
you know, using Wiimotes and iPads and that kind of thing, various other sensors to control software. And that was great. And I found myself really enjoying the tactile sense of that. So modular synthesis is obviously gives you a lot of that because you actually have to touch a device in order to make a sound. But I stayed away from it simply because I know that once you start, you can't stop. Uh, <laughs> and I eventually just got to a point in the last year or so where I was... Modular synthesis has become a very trendy thing to do, and it's everywhere, so I couldn't get, escape the talk about it. And a friend of mine was selling a system, and I found it and was like, all right, well, time seems right. Let's make the jump. Obviously, there's a bunch of different formats. Eurorack seems to be the most widely developed at the moment. There are modules from so many amazing little manufacturers that do so many amazing little things that it seemed to me to be the best value at the moment. So I took the plunge, and I have been absolutely loving it. My social life doesn't, but <laughs> it's an eight hours at a time minimum commitment just because it's so much fun and the opportunities and possibilities are endless. I know that we say that analog synthesis is sometimes fun because there are limits, but in a modular-based system, there really aren't because you can patch anything to anything else. There are the basics of synthesis that, you know, outputs go to inputs, etc., but you're the one putting the patch cables in, so you can patch anything to anything else and see what it sounds like. You can make amazing mistakes that sound just out of this world. And you can get such a wide variety of sounds. You can get all of those interface-type sounds. And you can get all these weird sci-fi things. But you can also get incredibly rich, incredibly dynamic musical tones out of these things as well. I found myself way, way down the rabbit hole and having a really good time. And I think the approach of putting my hands on it has changed a little bit of the way that I work, which has been great. And I still use it in conjunction with all of the other stuff I do. So the Kimas and the, the Max MSPs and all that kind of stuff. And they play really well together. I sequence my modular with a software application called Numerology, which works great. So I can program my sequences, run that straight through from MIDI to CV into my modular, have my modular make the sounds. Modular kicks it back out, records into Pro Tools. It's the best vintage and modern setup I could think of. So it's, it's really, really fun. It's really, really fun. That's awesome. I can't say enough about it. And I think the nice thing about the Eurorack format in particular is that the modules themselves, you can build a very basic system for not that much money. You know, you can get into modular synthesis, get into modular design for $500, and you can build yourself a basic oscillator filter output module. And you can add on from there. You know, that can become a unit that takes the size of your entire studio if you want to. Yeah, they call it Eurocrack for a reason. It's so much fun. And like I said, there are all of these little manufacturers popping up seemingly every day because it's become such a big market. The possibilities are endless. So you can just try something, and if it doesn't work or you want to maybe go in a different direction, do a little research, and I'm sure you can find a manufacturer that makes something to do what you want to do. Or there's a wonderful community that's formed around this stuff they'll help you build the thing that you want to do, which is also pretty fun. So if you're a, a circuits guy, if you like to solder things, you can make your own modules to do exactly what you want. How did you find the learning curve for the modular synthesis compared to like the learning curve for Kima? I mean, they're two completely different beasts. You know, modular, modular synthesizers do a small subset of what the Kima system can do. But... Um, I'll tell you what, I think that modular synthesis is a better starting point because in order to get that thing to do what you want, you have to understand the basics of synthesis. And it's a wonderful academic experience and it's a wonderful learning experience. I would recommend anyone who's just getting into synthesis to start with hardware in some form. And I think modulars are great because you have to actually buy the pieces. You know, you need to start with 
a sound generator. So you might have to buy an oscillator. You need to start with something that'll shape that tone. So you need to buy a filter. You need to start with something that will export that tone into something that you can record. So you have to buy some kind of outport module or a mixer. But you have to know what these things are. They're not just in the system. They're not just in a preset. There's no such thing. When I sit down and I stare at my my Eurorack system, it doesn't do anything. It just stares back at me. I have to tell it, <laughs> you know, I want this sound to come out of here and go into this and this sound to come out of there and go into this and so on and so forth. And I think it's it's really helped me actually reinforce the fundamentals of synthesis, which is wonderful. But that said, I mean, I can get you to start making sounds on a modular system in five seconds. It's, it's not hard once you understand the basics of what the modules do and how they operate with each other. Dustin, did you ever go through an analog synth phase? Like, Can you compare your experience from analog synth to modular synth? Uh, you mean in terms of keyboards and such? Well, just like uh, with an analog synthesizer, it, obviously it's not modular, which is the whole point of having a modular system. Like it's, it comes as a pre-made unit that does has limitations, where with modular you can keep adding and adding and adding new units. Uh, yeah, I think that there's really, in my opinion, there's no difference between a modular system and, uh, you know, a little fatty, for instance. The only difference is that you can't add other modules to a little fatty itself. So you're still doing modular synthesis, basically. You know, you're telling it, do you want the oscillators to go through the filter section or not? How do you want that filter section to work or not? You know, how do you want the oscillators to be set? You're still doing the exact same thing, and you're still following a signal from point source to point source to output. So it's the same thing in my mind. It's just a different form factor, really. And the expansion possibilities are, are greater or less than depending on what you're using. But I love keyboards. I, I love like all the Juno systems you mentioned, I think are fantastic. All of obviously the old Moog stuff I love. But I think that my bank account wanted me to go down the modular systems route <laughs> rather than the keyboard route simply because I could get a little bit more out of the modular stuff at a better price. <laughs> but all things being equal, to be honest, I would own both. I would own all of the above. <laughs> well, luckily, I've, I've never purchased an analog synth new. Like I've only got them used, as I said, in the piece, a lot of them from uh, thrift shops and stuff like that. The, the cool thing about analog synths is a lot of times well, it's, it's getting to the point now where people know, but for a while, especially in the mid to late 90s, people just didn't know what the heck they did. So you could pick them up for a song. Now that I know more about the modular synth world in the last few years, I'm really having a hard time not jumping in. And much like you were saying, I really want to get in there and see what it's like, but I haven't done it yet because I feel like it's a rabbit hole that you know, you spend the first $500 and then it's uh, three weeks later and you've already dropped another $1,000 on it. Yeah, but. It's, it's pretty easy to do. It's pretty easy to do. But um, if you're interested in synthesis, it's a great place to start. And you can start with the basics. There's a tremendous resource out there called uh, Muff Wigglers, which is uh, just basically a forum. And it is an amazing, amazing group of people who are incredibly friendly, incredibly knowledgeable, and they're all over the world, and they are just modular synth nerds. And I say that with such enunciation because it is true. They are the nerdiest of the nerds, but they are fantastic people. I've been on there. There's incredible threads on there that can help you get started. You can ask questions. Look, I'm just getting started. These are the types of things that I'd like to do. How do you think I should build my system? Other people have asked those questions. There's threads upon threads that are similar so if you're interested in that kind of stuff and you're trying to get your feet wet, it's a good place to start. How set up do you guys leave your synths? When you feel it's time to go to some analog synthesis, how much actual gear are you like getting out of the closet or is it sitting somewhere? Is it all the way hooked in? Are you already routing sounds all the way through it all the time? Uh, for me, all of my stuff is patched all the time. If I have to spend time setting it up, then the chances are that I'm not going to use it simply because it just puts me out of the creative mindset and now I'm in the configuration studio mindset again and then I've probably lost whatever inspiration I have so for me and this is personal but uh, for me everything has to be ready to go always so my modular system is literally sits right behind my desk I turn around make a patch press record you know I always have my track set in Pro Tools 
And usually if I'm doing modular work, they're just always in record. So I'm ready to go. And that's true of all the other gear that I have hanging around as well. Tim, what about you? Similar approach. I have a, a rack kind of in the back of my desk with a bunch of keyboards stacked on it. And they're all uh, patched into the mixer. And I just kind of pop up faders and go. And as you're moving along, do you feel yourself patching more or messing with knobs more? Both. Yeah, both. I mean, I think I usually start with patching. I try to get the signal flow to, you know, get things moving from the modules to other modules that I want, and then I'll start tweaking knobs and such. But it really is, it's really a 50-50 maneuver because once you start moving a knob, you may figure that the patch needs to change. And once you start changing the patch, then you might see that some knobs need to shift. So I think that's what's fun about it is that you can do all these things at one time. You know, you got two hands, so you can be moving patch cables around while you're adjusting all kinds of different parameters. And, you know, synthesis is, is an interesting thing because all of this stuff can be modulated. You know, so I can make a patch from an LFO to a filter cutoff that will automatically kind of move that the way that I would with my hands. I can have all kinds of that stuff going back and forth. I kind of like making patches that self-replicate and become organisms unto themselves. So if you set up a patch a certain way, that thing could run and change. They just make different sounds for days and days on end, which is really fun. <laughs> if you've ever seen uh, Richard Devine, actually, Obviously, is a huge modular synth guy, and he has some great Vimeo videos up where you can check out some of his kind of uh, self-replicating feedback-oriented patches. They're really fun. Dustin, what are you using your modular synth? Like, what applications are you using it for in terms of uh, design? My modular system I've only had for a few weeks, so I'm still in the process of moving some modules around, figuring out what I like and what I don't like. But right now, I've just been using it as kind of a sound generation source. So just making crazy patches always in record and just chopping that stuff up and adding it to my library. But making all kinds of different things, you know, drones, musical sequences, pads, uh, sound effect type things, UI sounds, little glitches, all kinds of things. Yeah, it seems like my brain goes to drones with regards to analog synthesis more than anything else. I got to do the uh, the open for the stars, and one of the big things I do is a big, thick, just drone. You know, they cut the arena to black, and they hit this big drone. So for that drone, I ended up having one of my coworkers has a modular synth, and we just kind of patched that sucker in, and just got just a big, fat, nasty, you know. All I did really was lay a minute of that into Pro Tools and then I kicked a bunch of plugins on and started just bending distortion and, and modulation around it on the recorded actual track after the fact. As a sound source, as the fundamental kind of basic part of what that sound was, it, that came straight from Analog World. Yeah, those types of low, fat, thick, you know, really dense, uh, really dense tones. I think you can never beat an analog synth for that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That thing rattled the arena too. It was great. Let's talk about how much space these things take up. When you really get into it, it really does take a lot of space. Tim, you said you had uh, you had to get rid of some just for purely for space concerns, right? Yeah, it's true. It, specifically, analog sense. Uh, the modular sense you can fit lots. Like they're only are they eight inches high? What? Uh, well, it totally depends on how many modules you're building. So mine's a twelve. No, but I mean one rack. That still depends on. There's different ones. So the Euro rack yeah. format is a bit smaller than the five U format. Yeah. Well, my point being that the, the modular synth, you can cram a lot more in a smaller space, where the analog synth, each one is its own built-in complete unit. And some of them, the Roland ones, are really large. So they, they take up a lot of space. But uh, they also, like you were saying earlier, I like to have as many as I can just up and running so I can just immediately start using them. But you can also, uh, I used to have them 
stacked side by side like guitars almost. <laughs> <laughs> Just pull up one and throw it on the keyboard stand if it wasn't one that I used all the time. I also actually, one of my favorite ones I had was a, uh, a foot organ. So it took space on the ground, which was, it just ended up getting kicked all the time. But yeah, they take up a lot of space. And uh, that is a give and take because, you know, you can get a thousand million uh, soft synths and they just go right in your computer and take up no extra space at all, where the analog ones just start piling up and piling up. So that leads us into some studio design kind of talk. And Dustin, you and I both just recently completely moved our studios. You're more recently than me. I don't know the I don't know the details of, of your move at all. When you were moving, were you able to kind of reset and redesign your workspace to integrate that type of thing? Well, the studios that we moved are more commercial operations, so it was a bit of a different approach to that build out. And it's also a multidiscipline facility, so we had to accommodate for editorial and animation, motion graphics, CG retouching, as well as audio recording, mix, sound design, and all that stuff. So. There were a lot of different things that we had to take into account. We moved to a completely new building, so we did do a, a full-on redesign. We were also bringing in another entire department. We absorbed uh, print production as well. Oh, wow. So we were kind of collaborating in terms of design to make sure that every person and every discipline got what they needed. But it wasn't necessarily, we didn't really design around, you know, making sure that we had room for modular synthesis and all that stuff because it's just, <laughs> it's just not what we do there. We're really more of a 30-second spot type place. How long did the move take? From the initial brief to move in was about five months, which is a bit insane. Yeah. And the space was a complete gut, so it was an empty box when we started. That's for, so the studio that we moved is part of a larger advertising agency. So it was a move for not just my group, but 300 people as well. So it was a big deal. Holy cow. Our move felt really big, but it was not nearly 300 people. There was five of us, but we did build a building from scratch. It's fun. Yeah, that was, it's pretty cool. Cause when you build a building from scratch, you get to do certain infrastructure things that you wouldn't get to do otherwise. Like, um, you know, all of our floors and our recording spaces are floated, but you don't have to step up to the floating floors. There's gaps that we poured into the foundation so you can step straight across into the floated room from the hallway, which the hallway is just painted concrete of the foundation, which, you know, that kind of stuff is really cool to kind of see it all come together and spec it all out per your, your specific spec, you know. I assume you got to play a big part in the design of your own room, correct? I did. You know, to a large degree, the interior layouts of our rooms didn't change. You know, we just do audio and we just do audio post. And so a lot of our workflow and, and our mentality didn't shift too much. We did all get nice C24s, which we didn't have before. And so, you know, the furniture changed. And a little bit of the IO kind of structure changed uh, because we're using the C24s for monitoring. So we kind of had to, it, the whole facility runs off of Pro Tools templates. And so we had to update all of our templates to accommodate the different monitoring routing that the C24 takes. But yeah, I've I've actually been able to be very involved in a lot of the other kind of peripheral decisions of workflow and, and the way that certain things work. And it just, it's been really nice to build it from the ground up. Did either of you guys employ uh, acousticians or uh, sound architects? Yeah. And how, how, how does that process work? Like, I've never gone down that road. Like, how many are there? Like, do you have to pick from hundreds or are there just a few companies that kind of specialize in it? You know, the guy that we chose, his name's Francis Manzella. He did the CBS studios out of New York. He did a bunch of New York facilities. There's a guy that does a lot of rooms in the Dallas area named Russ Berger. And so, you know, I don't think it's like dozens and dozens of people that have a very high reputation. I mean, maybe it's dozens and dozens, but it's not like hundreds or thousands, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you, you get a pretty narrow list pretty quickly. Our guy, Francis, was amazing, though. We moved certain structures over. We have certain rooms that are built by Acoustic Systems, which is a modular steel fabrication. So basically, you can take the walls and the floors and the ceiling, and you just tear them down and put them on a truck and move them over and set them back up. And a lot of the acoustic treatment is, is built into those walls and floors and ceiling that you're moving over. And so, you know, we, we were bringing a few of those rooms with us. And so for those rooms, Francis basically had the interior dimensions dictated to him. And from that, he plugged all that into his software and came up with the interior acoustic build-out. 
which worked out really, really well. The room that I'm in right now is, it used to be the main room at the old place. And uh, it sounds better now because of the, the number of things that, that we did on the interior acoustic build-out. You know, we've got bass traps built into the walls now. We've got more kind of acoustic treatment up in the ceiling and the clouds. We've got a really kick-ass Helmholtz resonator sitting in the back that was custom-built per the size of the room. And so, you know, even if your architect has certain dimensions dictated to him, you know, they can really do some amazing things to make the room sound good. I have really nice speakers in here. I have nice, uh, you know, Genelec monitoring, but I know I could switch out other monitoring in here and it would still sound amazing because so much of your of your monitoring situation is about your your room, you know. It was a really good experience. The guy, <laughs> he produced so many documents with so much detail to them. When the poor electricians saw the uh, the electrical layout that he just dreamed up, their jaws hit the floor that they had to kind of go execute this. And it was pretty wild. So this, this is Dallas Audio Post, right? Yes. That we're talking about. So you guys were already an existing company in another location. Yep. And you guys decided you wanted to find a new space. How long was it from that decision until you opened the doors at this new space? It was two years of planning and execution. So most of that was spent acquiring the funds, you know, getting funded from the bank, hiring the architect, signing off on all the plans, getting your contractor together, getting everything built off. And then at the, at the tail end of that, we had a three-month crunch where all of us worked every day, 12-hour days, in order to get the move open. Because what we did was we closed down Friday at the old location and opened for business Monday at the new location. <laughs> Which I've been through that with this company before, actually. This is not our first move. Hopefully it's your last. Yeah, hopefully it's our last. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a massive crunch, you know, and it's just, it puts a lot of pressure on people and, you know, it's worth it. The place that I get to come to work is just amazing. But it's a lot of, it's a lot of pushing right at the very end just to get everything installed and tested and up and run. And then even when you open the doors, there's, I found that there was probably three months of maybe four or five months of just gremlins of just finding little things and, and getting, getting rid of them. And, you know, even still there's little things here and there that I'm tracking down, but definitely those first few weeks were gremlin city. Did you find that Dustin when you, when you moved over there? Oh yeah. Yeah. We've only been in the new space. This is our second full week. So yeah, we still have another two months of at least figuring stuff out. And it was the same, you know, we moved, we, we were open for business on Friday, all day Friday. We shut down Friday evening, and then we were reopened 9 a.m. Monday morning. So yeah. obviously we all know, you know, in this business, you cannot afford any downtime. So we have clients, you know, that are outside of the agency at large, and they don't care if you're moving. You know, they need, they need what they need when they need it, so you better be able to get it. But, yeah, so we're, we're in, we're two weeks in, and, yeah, we still have a long way to go before we're before I think we're comfortable. So that's, it's part of the process, you know, it's, and even then, I mean, once you're in, even when you're in a space that's been established for many years, it's always a process. Things always change. Yeah, for sure. You know, with us, we, we maintain all of our infrastructure ourselves, right? We don't have any kind of outside company that we call when we need to upgrade computers or do any of that. Certain, you know, certain companies do that, or they have a person on staff. They have a pure maintenance facilities person that just does that. Um, we don't, we kind of do it all internally. And so to some degree it's good and to some degree that's bad, right? Because you don't ever have time to fix things, but you also are highly incentivized to go fix things <laughs> because you're the ones working on them and you know exactly how to fix them. We did a whole different patch base game that I became very familiar with very quickly because I had to go troubleshoot the hell out of it. Um, the first few months. And now when, whenever I hear a certain little, there's a certain sound that I can, that I'll hear every so often, I'll be like, I know exactly what that is. And I'll go get the tools out and, and fix it and, and get it happening. It's really nice to kind of have that type of institutional knowledge internally though. It's really nice to be able to know exactly how everything's put together. Um, not only so that you can fix it, but also so that you can intelligently upgrade it and change it as, as those situations arise. Yeah, because a client doesn't want to hear, we just got to wait for this guy that's on the other side of town to come over here and fix this. You got to be able to know how the studio works yeah. and get in there and figure out what the problem is because they're not sitting around and waiting. And beyond the client, I don't want to hear that, you know? Yeah, I, exactly. I don't want to yeah, yeah. anybody. I want to just go do it. 
Something that I'm interested about uh, with studio moves in this day and age, that's a great phrase, but uh, we always talk about all the new gear you get. I'm wondering, what decisions did you guys make on gear that you didn't port over? Like, was there any stuff that you just decided had kind of aged out? Because I assume there's lots of things like uh, video formats that you no longer use anymore. Do you even have a, an array of video decks anymore? Or yeah, you that's, just... that's the answer. We, we lost all of our video decks pretty much. Like we had beta decks that were plugged in that didn't get moved, you know, DV decks that were plugged in that, that got moved but didn't really get plugged back in. We changed our digital routing setup, so that kind of got aged out. Mostly video decks. <laughs> That's pretty much the answer on my side. Yeah, we, we moved from three racks of video equipment to one rack, and we just kept one of those things. We do have, uh, unfortunately, a fair amount of legacy requests come through, so even we still do three-quarter we still do vhs sometimes but nice. for the most part yeah we were able to trim that down to to just one standing rack of of kind of legacy gear and then everything else was was moved into more modern equipment so and we worked really hard to design an infrastructure that would support not just what we were doing right now but support growth five ten years fifteen years down the down the line so one thing that we used to have was a fiber-based SAN, which we have now ditched, and we've gone with 10-gig copper-based storage, which we're really, really excited about. And we're really? probably one of the only facilities that's doing that, which is, which is really, really fun. So we're psyched about that. So no more fiber management software, no more expensive cabling to run. It's all over Cat6 RJ45 connections, it can support your legacy device just as well as it can support your 10 gig device. And I can stream the same project to my two Pro Tools rooms as I can to my animation rooms, my CG rooms, and my editorial station. So we're pretty psyched about that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, we're still running fiber over here. Are your computers in a machine room or are they in the rooms with you? Currently, they're in the, in the rooms. We'd like to move them into the machine room and do digital KVM with that as well. And so we did actually install uh, 10 gig fiber drops to each of those rooms so that we could do the KVMs if we wanted to. But we'll see. It's, it's a, obviously a big expense to do the KVMing system. But there's also some nice benefits in which anybody can sit in any room and pick up any machine, which is kind of nice. So we'll, we'll see if we go down that route in the future. But right now, yeah, we have the workstations in the rooms. Yeah, ours, ours isn't exactly KVM. We have fiber extensions on the monitors. And then we have just USB extensions via Ethernet mm -hmm. for the keyboard and for the other USB things. But all the computers sit in the machine room. And that makes it nice with regards to the rest of your fiber cabling because you don't have to run it around the whole building for your actual storage. And you are running fiber for your monitors, but not for the storage itself. It's also nice because it allows us to put all the computers onto UPSs. So if power ever goes down... It takes less UPSs to keep that whole part of the rig up and running. Yeah. I used to work in data centers, so I like the idea of putting all of your machines in one spot. It makes maintenance a lot easier. It makes cabling a lot easier. It makes yeah. uh, you know, your power management a lot easier. Yep. But I think the way that we were working, unfortunately, right now necessitates the machines still being in those rooms. But hopefully, you know, a year or two years from now, we can put all that stuff into the the AV closet and... Um, just KVM from there. So you're running copper for your data? Yeah. Well, it's just your typical RJ45 connection. And then we've got a 10 gig switch, which will support that throughput. And then that switch goes to a storage appliance, which operates more as a NAS than it would have SAN. It sits on the network and I can share folders to anybody the same way I would, you know, same way you were if you were mounting a shared folder from your laptop to your desktop machine. That's cool. But it's all over, you know, extremely fast 10 gig Ethernet, which is great. That's definitely something that I fight with regards to our backups right now. Because our SAN software has to, our backup software is fighting our SAN software right now. Mm -hmm. You automate all that and it works fine for a while and then one of the programs updates and it breaks what was working before. Yeah, that's one thing we really wanted to get out of the game of management software and having to license switch ports and all of that kind of stuff, uh, yeah. which you have to do when you have a, a fiber-based system. So, you know, we also have freelancers come and go. 
And the last thing I want to do is have to spend 30 minutes with a freelancer in the middle of the day teaching them how to mount a drive. Everybody these days knows how to share a folder. So if I could get rid of that layer of management software, I think it would enable them to just sit down and work, plus all the other benefits. So basically the storage system we have now that we move to, it operates as a NAS, which is just a network attached storage. It's, it's kind of a dummy dump of, of drives, but it's incredibly fast. So it's got 10 gig modules built right in there. That goes to a 10 gig switch. That switch then services all the workstations. And the workstations communicate with the storage just like they would any other shared resource. And there's no management software to worry about. No, you know, I, I can buy as many 10 gig modules for the switch as I want, but I don't have to license per port. So it's easy. So what was your role in your move? And when did you do what you needed to do for that move? Well, I guess I kind of set up the infrastructure and worked as much as I could on the design of the new space from day one. So as soon as we found out, okay, we're moving, then they came to me and said, what do you want? What does it look like? How does it work? And I had to put together all of that documentation, get all of the right people involved to the best of my ability so that we could execute that. Because as you said, you were moving, what, five people across two years? We were moving yeah. 300 people across five months. So it was a little bit in, of an insane project, but we got in, things are working, so I guess we did something right. <laughs> nice. But certainly from a, an infrastructure point of view, I, I was able to kind of dictate what I wanted, what I thought that we needed based on what we had, where we wanted to go. We have traditionally been a very small shop, but we have great vision for what we want to do. So. It wasn't just about, okay, we're doing this, we're going to keep doing this, let's do some upgrades. It was, we're doing this, we want to do all of this other stuff, what do we need to build to accommodate that growth, as I said, you know, next year, five years, 15 years from now. What was the answer to that? What kind of things did you add to your workflow? Uh, well, it was things like this increased storage, you know, so that I can support other people without having to run fiber connections and license ports and all that management software. It was things like building additional rooms. It was things like getting fiber in place there so that I could do KVMs so that an editor and an animator could switch rooms easily if they needed to so that freelancers could pick up projects wherever they needed to. It was about building a second audio room so that we could handle more of that workflow. It was about just making sure that everything that we built there as much as we could, you know, we're still a corporation, so we get squeezed a little bit, but as much as we could try to anticipate where we were headed rather than just where we are. Yeah, with me, it was adding things like a more flexible patch panel into the control room to make it easier for me just to grab a microphone and patch mm -hmm. it straight in in the control room. That was more difficult at the old location. Adding the C24s was big for me because of how much I find myself controlling plugins with faders yep. now in a way that I didn't before. So that's, that's been huge for me is having a fully integrated fader package that I can dump plugin parameters out onto and manipulate in real time that way. Yeah. Cause I never really got to do that before I had, I had a controller, but it was Huey. And so you could never really manipulate plugin parameters that way. Yeah. Yeah. We did, and, we did stuff like that in terms of the, the gear upgrades you know, from an audio perspective, we added a D command in, in Mix 1. We went moved our TDM system into the new Mix 2, and now we're an HDX-based system in there. We're full surround in all of those rooms. We made sure that there's a shared booth so that when one room was tied up, you could still record in the other room. Jeez, we did a lot. There was tons of stuff we did for the editorial and animation departments as well as far as getting them the right software, making sure that they could kind of do some of the production-based things that we had started to do. There's so much. It's like my brain just has been swimming yeah. in this stuff for so long. <laughs> and then you have to call all your clients for a year and tell them the new address. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And they will still show up at the old place. I'm here and no one else is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's also some news. Um, one thing that's very interesting, Nuendo 6 has been released, the latest version of Nuendo from Steinberg. I would encourage any post person to check it out. The features look pretty amazing. 
Uh, one thing that I really like is the their ADR system looks pretty great. So I believe that that's out and available. Check it out at Steinberg.net. And Tim, I think you've got some Waves info. Uh, this is just about Waves plugins. I don't know about you guys, but in the past, their update plan has been kind of a uh, sticking point for a lot of people. It's kind of an annoying way to go about things. Uh, the way you had to constantly keep renewing your update plan in order to upgrade your system, even if you didn't want to do it that year, you had to keep the update plan going. And they've kind of changed that now so that you pay $300 whenever you want to jump back into the, a cap of $300 whenever you want to jump back into the upgrade plan. So for instance, if you're fine with all your Waves plugins right now and your update plan that you got when you purchased it expires, you don't have to renew it right away. You can renew it in three years or something when you want to go and upgrade again instead of spending the $300 or so every year, even if you're not doing an upgrade. So that's an interesting change. I still think it's not necessarily the best way to go about it, but uh, it's definitely a step forward for them. Have you guys had problems with that before? I just don't like paying for things that I don't use. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I've also tried to get away from Waves wherever I possibly can. Just, I mean, I think they make some great products, but I think these days most of the things that they make other little manufacturers have made better versions of those things that I would much rather support and not have to pay $300 to upgrade at some point. Yeah, you know, our main dub stage actually just moved to AAX only. And because Waves is not AAX native right now, we've had to move entirely away from a lot of that on the stage as well. Not facility-wide, but definitely on the, on the main stage. You sound so sad about it. <laughs> You know, I, I live on that R compressor. That R compressor and yeah. me are good buddies, you know? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't love a good L1 at the end of the day? But, um, <laughs> you know, there, there are other things that do what L1 does for a lot less money and a lot less waves. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who participates in the show. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tone Benders or go to ToneBenders.net and leave a comment. Also check us out on Facebook.com slash ToneBendersPodcast. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Tone Benders. Find us online at ToneBenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at The Tone Benders. Or email us at DC, Timothy, or Renee at tonebenders.net. Cool. Hey guys, how long are your files?